So um, that was, those were the driving factors. Did he also mention to me in the past that the, 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 the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. No question about that. Um, but that's it. And that's why we held up the money. That's why we held up the money. That was acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney making what amounted to a remarkable public confession. There was indeed a quid pro quo. The White House, under orders from Trump, suspended $391 million in military aid to Ukraine in order to get its new government to investigate the Democratic National Committee server that the president bizarrely thinks is being hidden somewhere in the bowels of a basement in Kiev. It's an absurd conspiracy theory pushed by the president's allies, a way to somehow exonerate Vladimir Putin's Russia over its attack on the 2016 election. Mulvaney's unexpected candor blindsided White House lawyers, and he was quickly forced to walk back the very comments the country had just heard on national television. But the damage was done. The White House had once again handed the president's critics vital new ammunition for the impeachment inquiry. We'll discuss with a key member of the House committees investigating the president, and we'll talk with a former National Security Council official about the fallout from Vice President Pence's deal with Turkish President Erdogan for a temporary ceasefire in Syria on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So uh, we all watched the Mulvaney presser, and my thought is when Mulvaney made those comments, that's evidence. He is quoting the president. That is exactly the sort of testimony that the House committees are desperately trying to get in this impeachment inquiry, and then Mulvaney hands it to them on a silver platter. Yeah, we could see it uh, quoted in uh, Article 1 of impeachment proceedings. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To me, I, what I kept thinking is, like, first of all, how in the world is this happening? And is this uh, kind of the chaos and incompetence that you often see in this administration? Or is it some kind of, like, calculated strategy, very Trumpian, actually, to try to normalize their borderline criminality um, and say, hey, it's all out in the open. So, you know, let's just move on. Right, right. And, you know, what struck me is, okay, the White House lawyers, clearly they were to the extent that there is any planning for a defense for the president in an impeachment trial. It's going to hang on the argument that there wasn't a quid pro quo because that's what the president supposedly told Gordon Sondland, when uh, Sondland, the uh, ambassador to the uh, European Union, called him uh, and he testified to that effect. So they have the president's words to Sondland saying no quid pro quo. And now we have Mick Mulvaney's words saying, oh, yes, there was. The president told me that's one of the reasons to get the Ukrainians to do what he wants is political bidding. That's one of the reasons he held up the aid. Now, 
the White House lawyers, you know, again, freaking out. that. Well, well Jay Sekulow, his personal lawyer, uh, right. apparently said he had no idea that uh, Mulvaney was going to go out and say these things. So they craft a statement from Mulvaney saying, no, there absolutely was no quid pro quo. But Which, very, which sounded very much like the text message that Gordon Sondland <laughs> sent to Bill Taylor saying, I just spoke to the president. There's no quid pro quo. Yeah, and but that doesn't negate. He didn't say, no, I misspoke. The president never Never told me that he just said there was no quid pro quo. So they're still stuck with what Mulvaney said, quoting the president, citing the president's directive that, yes, that's why we held up the money. Look, at every stage of this, before it became public, as people who are involved in this conspiracy are seeing it unfold, their reaction is there is a quid pro quo, right? right? I mean, we know that William Taylor, the uh, ambassador who was at the embassy in Ukraine, who was on these uh, conversations and text messages with Gordon Sondland, is, is saying, you know, this looks like a quid pro quo. We know that Sondland who sent the text message saying there is no quid pro quo after he was dictated to do that by Trump actually went to Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican from Wisconsin, and told him there was a quid pro quo. Right. And we know that uh, we learned this week from Fiona Hill's testimony, who was the top NSC official overseeing Russia and Ukraine and was in some of these meetings, that uh, she was horrified by what was going on, talked to her boss, the national security advisor, John Bolton. John Bolton (laughs) saw what was happening. And in fact, he directed Fiona Hill to go to White House lawyers and tell them, I think the quote is, have you got the quote there? Well, I got the quote of what Hill said Bolton told her, I am not part of, of any drug deal of, 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 of Sondland any, and Mulvaney whatever, are cooking up. Yeah, I'm not part of whatever drug deal they're cooking up. Pretty strong words. Now, and, and now we have Mulvaney right, affirming that. Affirming it. Now, to be fair, because we like to be fair on skullduggery, don't we? Uh, Mulvaney tried to make a distinction between the request about the DNC server and supposed Ukrainian interference in the 2000. 16 election, distinguishing that from the separate request on that phone call for an investigation into Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. And the reason he's making that distinction is he's saying that the request relating to the server and Ukraine is part of a authorized Justice Department investigation into the origins of the Russia probe to begin with, and therefore asking a foreign government to cooperate with a uh, duly authorized Justice Department investigation is not in any way improper or unorthodox. The problem with that, though, the problem with that is that there's absolutely no indication that the Justice Department review ordered by Attorney General Barr, being conducted by John Durham, is looking at the supposedly missing DNC server, which is a complete irrelevancy and has nothing to do with the ample evidence that the Russians hacked the DNC and then uh, uh, gave the documents to WikiLeaks. And moreover, do we really think that President Trump is making 
these kinds of distinctions no. you know, between a duly authorized Justice Department investigation and yeah. his desire to investigate Joe yeah. Biden for what he perceives to be right. corruption. You can you know, possibly construct a plausible argument for what Mulvaney is saying if John Durham, who's conducting that review from Barr, had gone to Kiev and asked for this information and hadn't been getting it, and therefore there was a holdup. But what did the Justice Department, how did the Justice Department respond? to this. They said uh, Mulvaney's remarks were news to yeah. us. <laughs> so the Justice Department had nothing to do yeah. with this bizarre request from Trump to find the uh, supposedly missing DNC server. Look, what strikes me is there is a kind of connective tissue between all of these scandals that we've been talking about over the last weeks. You know, you've got Ukraine, which was clearly uh, subverting American foreign policy interests to the president's political mm-hmm. needs. You've got even what's happening in Turkey and Syria is a, a wholesale politicization of American foreign policy because, you know, President Trump made a promise to his base uh, that they were going to get out of uh, out of these wars, um, and he wants to fulfill that well, promise. Well, that's, 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 okay. that's a legitimate I, I foreign it. policy goal. Okay, I get uh, it. But, wanna... but the question is, do you make Uh, Those kinds of foreign policy decisions based on, you know, those kinds of very kind of crude political electoral uh, calculations. And and when you're president, I I have to disagree with you there. I don't don't think that's an electoral calculation. He has a clear resistance to having U.S. troops around the world involved in what he views as endless wars with some justification. Afghanistan is certainly in that category. And Syria is, is looking like one as well. You know, the question is how you go about it. And. And um, is there any sort of process that makes some sense that will further your goals? That's the question about the serious stuff. But look, politically, you know, I think the serious stuff is huge. And clearly it's offended uh, and upset a lot of Republicans in the Senate who Trump is going to need for the what's looking like the inevitable impeachment trial. And some of his most loyal supporters. I mean, clearly you have the Mitt Romney's of the world who have been criticizing the president about a lot of things, uh, most notably his conduct in office. Uh, But then you also have Lindsey Graham, who is apoplectic about what's going on and has uh, made that clear to the president. Yeah, Graham is uh, is a guy uh, Trump is going to need 100 percent. And to uh, have him as upset as he is about this is not good for the president's defense. The other thing, bizarre thing that happened in that Mulvaney press conference was the beginning of it, where he announced that uh, the G7 is that they've selected (laughs) uh, the best possible (laughs) place for uh, for this kind of a, a meeting. The uh, Doral uh, yeah, golf, the resort golf resort in, in Florida. Miami. And he said it was almost as if it was constructed for this very purpose. You know, I mean, part of me is thinking, why does Adam Schiff and the, do, do Adam Schiff and the Democrats have to go through this whole process of hearings and depositions when the White House is handing them all the evidence they need? Start with the transcript of the phone call where Trump clearly says what he says, asking about Zelensky to uh, investigate Bi- the Bidens. You have Mulvaney acknowledging this was a 
part of a quid pro quo. And then you have the uh, Doral deal, which is, you know, it's like they're writing the articles of impeachment for the Democrats. That's right, if they throw right in there. emoluments, well, right? Of course which we expect well, they will, right? Uh, we absolutely expect there's going to be Article 3 is going to be emoluments. Article 2 is going to be obstruction. And Article 1 is going to be the Ukraine deal. And then the question is, but under the obstruction, of course, you know, there'll be plenty of stuff about the obstruction of the Mueller probe. We'll be getting into this, uh, we hope, with our uh, first guest, Jamie Raskin. Um, so on, on emoluments, before we get to Raskin, I just want to say I was doing a little bit of research on how prior presidents uh, dealt with this issue when they were uh, the recipients of gifts from foreign leaders and, and princes, as the actual emolument clause refers to. And, do do uh, tell. Well, 1861, Abraham Lincoln yeah. received a number of uh, gifts from the King of Siam. Okay. He, let's see. He said, Your Majesty, I'm going to yeah. read this. This is a letter yeah. that he sent the King of Siam, February 14th, 1861. Great and good friend, I have received Your Majesty's two letters. He says, Your Majesty's. He says, I have also received in good condition the royal gifts which accompanied those letters, namely a sword of costly materials and exquisite workmanship, a photograph of your likeness, two elephant tusks, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and then he says, your majesty's letters show an understanding that our laws forbid the president from receiving these rich presents <laughs> as personal treasures. And he says, he goes on to say that under their direction, the gifts will be placed among the archives of the government where they will remain perpetually as tokens of mutual esteem and pacific dispositions more honorable to both nations than any trophies of conquest could be. So that was 1861. Folks, Flash. You, you, you heard it only <laughs> on Skullduggery. The King of Siam gets a shout out on Skullduggery. But yeah. flash forward to 2009 when Obama, much to his surprise, is notified that he's receiving the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. And what does the White House do? They seek a legal opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel to determine whether that accepting that prize would be would be in conflict with the emoluments clause. It turns out it wasn't. He was able to accept it. Every president has done this. I think John F. Kennedy was uh, being offered Irish citizenship, and he did the same thing, requested whether that uh, an opinion as to whether that would be in violation of the emoluments clause. This president has never done that, as far as we can tell. Well, you know, like I said, it's um, ample ammunition that the Democrats can use and the White House. I mean, I got to say, I'm pretty stunned about the Doral deal. You would think, knowing the controversy about the Trump organization businesses and the Trump Hotel and the lawsuits, ongoing lawsuits about emoluments, that somebody would have said maybe this isn't the greatest idea. Well, they talked the about it. I mean, Mulvaney but, said in the press conference that yeah. they knew that they would get, were going to get criticism for this. They they talked about it. They recognized that this would be uh, would be questioned. But Trump did it anyway because Trump likes to stick out a big middle finger to the New York Times and to skullduggery <laughs> and to all the naysayers and to yeah. and to the liberals. You know, that's just his yeah. M.O. Yeah. Well, look, what I want to know at this point is what is the road going forward for the Democrats? How are they going to get from these closed door hearings with secret depositions being leaked out by partisans on 
both sides after the fact to making the public case that all this adds up to impeachment and removal for the president. It seems to me they've got to hold public hearings fairly soon. There's got to be a referral to the House Judiciary Committee uh, to vote articles of impeachment out. And yet we keep hearing about more witnesses they're calling. I wonder if the I think they've got like four or five more scheduled over the next week or so. And remember, you have these closed door hearings. Then you want if you want public hearings, you got to bring these people back and you have to reschedule to get them back. That's going to take time. The clock is ticking. It seems to me once you get into 2020, the whole impeachment process becomes dicier because we're in an election year. That's one of the questions we want to ask Jamie Raskin, our first guest about. But before we get there, I want to remind you that if you've got any questions, comments or thoughts, criticisms, whatever, uh, feel free to uh, ping us at Skullduggery Pod. That's at Skullduggery Pod, and we will certainly take them under advisement. Okay, we now have with us um, Jamie Raskin, congressman from Maryland, somebody deeply involved in the entire impeachment inquiry. And a three-time or four-time Four-time Skullduggery guest. Congressman, welcome back again to Skullduggery. Well, thanks for having me. Quite a week. How big of a gift for you was um, Mulvaney's comments yesterday in that press conference? Well, you mean th- that full-blown confession that he rendered on national TV? <laughs> you know, I mean, if it if it weren't clear to anybody before, it should be perfectly clear now. But uh, this whole thing is not exactly an Agatha Christie mystery. You know, I think we know precisely what happened. It's just that the, I, I suppose the character of the crime gets bigger and bigger. I mean, his his alibi was they were actually committing a different crime. <laughs> you know, we, we thought what they were doing was shaking down uh, Ukraine for uh, political dirt on the Bidens. He said, no, actually, we're shaking them down for uh, validation of a paranoid uh, conspiracy theory about Ukraine in the 2016 well, election. Well, he, he, said, he said it's about an, uh, cooperating with an authorized Justice Department investigation is the way he presented it. Well, that must have been uh, a cleanup operation. I didn't hear him say that. Uh, <laughs> well, no, in the press conference, he was saying, look, the, the, the request relating to the server relates to the Justice Department inquiry ordered by Barr, being conducted by John Durham into the origins of the Russia investigation. OK, well, um, the, the way that I read it is that his alibi was we were what we were really doing was shaking them down for confirmation of a conspiracy theory that would help us debunk the Mueller report and Mueller's finding that there was a sweeping and systematic campaign by uh, Vladimir Putin to undermine our election. They wanted to replace that with a theory that there was some Ukraine DNC plot to bring the computer server there or something. I mean, I can barely even follow it. But um, Have you sent investigators it, to Kiev to find that <laughs> server? <laughs> so, I, you know, the, the whole thing is reflective of a state of mind where they think, as he insisted repeatedly yesterday, this is perfectly routine and valid conduct on their part. This is how they operate. They hold up 
you know, money that Congress has lawfully appropriated for particular purposes here, military assistance to a struggling Democratic ally in Ukraine, which is dealing with uh, the Russian occupation of the Crimea and trying to contend with Russian influence, and then hold that up in return for complying with the president's political demands. I mean, it's just an outrageous, scandalous situation, and everybody sees it for what it is now. This impeachment is moving on a pretty fast track right now. You've got Mitch McConnell saying that everyone should be ready uh, by uh, Thanksgiving, that a trial could take place between Thanksgiving and Christmas. There's a lot of clearly a lot of evidence. I mean, in some ways, uh, the Democrats cup floweth over. But the question is, how are you going to make the tightest, strongest uh, case that is going to sway the American people and ultimately uh, sway Republicans in the Senate. And what does that look like to you right now? What is the impeachment case against Donald Trump? Uh, well, the heart of it is this uh, shakedown, the sellout of our principles and the, and the subsequent cover-up. But it radiates outwards from there. Um, you know, there was the political hit job that was orchestrated against Ambassador Yovanovitch and the failure of the president to come to her aid. On the contrary, the president and uh, Secretary Pompeo sold her down the river, uh, all in pursuit of um, this duplicitous plot that he had deputized um, Rudy Giuliani to go and execute in Ukraine. So that's the heart of it. But of course, The cardinal sin of the administration from the beginning has been the conversion of the presidency into an instrument of private profit and campaign reelection. And so we have these uh, substantial and repeat and continuing violations of the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses. These are the clauses that were set up in the Constitution precisely to prevent this kind of misconduct. So you know, the for- so write the articles of impeachment for us. You have to have been giving a lot of thought to this. What's Article 1? Is it a, a broad abuse of power or a, a narrow abuse of power related to Ukraine? What's Article 2? Uh, presumably obstruction. Uh, Article 3 emoluments. Give us your roadmap to what the articles are going to look like. Well, you know, the, the, the fact is that since we're still in the very active investigative mode, but I'm not there yet. Um, there are a lot of, I mean, when you try to sketch it out, there are a lot of different ways of organizing all of this conduct. And you can either try to tell a factual narrative and then draw legal conclusions from it, or you can organize it by specific high crimes and misdemeanors, abuse of power, uh, violation of the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses, obstruction of justice, contempt of Congress. So there's different ways you can set it up. And I, I think, um, you know, there's a, the, we're going to have to follow the evidence and see how complete a story we can tell. And, you know, it, it's a kind of uh, race that's going on. On the one hand, we have this Pandora's box of high crimes and misdemeanors that are popping out all over the place because. Donald Trump is a one-man crime wave, you know, but it's a race between that and the legislative calendar and our need to get this done. I think it's everybody's desire to get it done in 2019. You know, there's a legislative calendar at work, and then there's a political campaign calendar at work, and I think everybody would like to see us wrap this stuff up in 2019 before voting starts. And, And will there be public hearings? And if so, when will they be? And, and who which, will conduct and which, them? And which committee will hold those hearings? 
I mean, I would love to tell you guys, but none of that has been decided yet. I think that there's a strong sentiment that we need to have public hearings. But remember, we're basically in the down and dirty investigative mode right now. Um, You know, in prior impeachments with Nixon and Clinton, there were special counsels that collected a lot of the basic facts. I mean, you know, if you look at the Clinton impeachment, Ken Starr turned his report over to the House Judiciary Committee, and that was pretty much the end of it. I don't think they called any witnesses. And basically, they just used that report. In the Nixon impeachment, it was much more thorough than that. But still, they relied very heavily on special counsel Archibald Cox's work. We don't have a special counsel on this. Mueller, remember, was limited completely in time and scope to the 2016 election. So he hasn't done any of this stuff about the Ukraine plot and you know the surrounding facts. So we're doing all of that for the first time. And that that's why we are in an in investigative closed door mode right now. But look, in those past impeachments, there was much more of a rigorous process. Um, it's true that under Nixon, House Judiciary had closed door hearings, but then it had public hearings. And in those closed door hearings, by the way, the president's president Nixon's lawyer, James Sinclair, was there to be present and was uh, able to question witnesses. In Clinton's case, David Kendall was able in public uh, before the TV cameras to question Ken Starr before the House Judiciary Committee as part of the impeachment inquiry that was going on. None of that's taking place here. All closed doors, no counsel from the president present. Um, We're just getting selective leaks. I don't get what the reason at this point is to have closed door hearings. Given that they're leaking out anyway, Schiff's rationale, well, we can't let the witnesses know what other witnesses are saying. We're learning that in real time anyway. So why can't we see this in public right now? Well, there are two reasons. One is um, the evidentiary reason, which which uh, the chairman uh, Schiff stated properly. I mean, these people would be coordinating their stories and have done everything they can, I think, to try to uh, coordinate their stories. And so, but they can do that anyway that from- by reading the newspapers and seeing what well, people but, are saying. But you know, the, um, the Department of Justice had the opportunity to bring a case here. They had all the whistleblower information um, and they decided not to investigate. They decided that there was no crime here. They decided not to go into it. So this is the only impeachment where you do not have a prior Department of Justice investigation into uh, essential material facts. So that's what we're trying to do right now. I understand this is the Republican um, irrelevant process complaint of the week that they want to say that all of these should be open door hearings. But Tra- that, transparency because, is not a Republican uh, goal exclusively. It, it, it is a goal it, it totally that we all week. share. Well, right. well, wait a second. It is this week because the, the Republicans, of course, show no interest in transparency with anything else respect to the administration. But the, the point the point I want to make here is that they would love to turn each of the depositions we're doing into a Corey Lewandowski-style circus show uh, an indictment of their fantasy deep state conspiracy uh, imaginings. 
I mean, that's what they but, want to do. But and Congress- we're not going to do that. We're, we, we, are, we are actually making remarkably rapid and methodical progress precisely because we are not allowing them to turn it into a circus. We're dealing with a very different Republican Party in 2019 than you were dealing with uh, back during the Watergate period. But as a just a political proposition, isn't it important at some point to hold public hearings to avoid the perception uh, that you're railroading uh, the president. Okay. You you want to so, you want to appeal I, I, not just I, to yes right okay go ahead. I want I want to make two points about it. One is understand what the constitutional design is here. We are not having a trial in the House of Representatives. We are the prosecutors. At best, you can liken this to a grand jury. And as you know, people don't have due process rights before a grand jury. You don't have a right to appear there and bring lawyers and make a case. That's what the trial is about. The House of Representatives acts like a prosecutor. We are bringing charges. We will send impeachment managers over to the U.S. Senate in order to make our case. At that point, the full panoply of due process protections kicks in for the president, for his lawyer to appear, to put on whatever crazy evidence they want. They can do whatever they want over there, but that's the trial. They're just trying to blockade the progress of impeachment. Having said that, I definitely think that we need to have some uh, public hearings at some point. But the major thing is for us to get the evidence down, for us to make the case, and then we will do the public hearings that are warranted. But they should not be confusing the trial process with what the prosecutors do. That right, is the, in your mind, one, there's one last question here. In your mind, uh, Congressman, what is the, the most important evidence that to this date is missing? What do Democrats need to make a, a really an ironclad case for impeachment here? That hasn't come out yet. Oh, well, I believe that we have something close to an ironclad case on multiple high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, and if we had to cut it off right now, I think that we would be able to move forward with multiple uh, counts. What's, multiple our, what's Article 1? But what's I'll Article tell you what's one? missing. Well, I, again, I don't know because th- that's a matter of the legal draftsmanship, and we're not there yet. But let me, but let me tell you this. I'll tell you what is missing. We don't have, you know, Speaker Pelosi has come close to it in the last couple of days when she's been saying, with you, Mr. President, all roads lead to Putin. And that's clearly true. The only way of uh, understanding the president's various foreign policy reversals and blunders and uh, bafflements is that everything lines up with what Vladimir Putin would want, the dismantling of NATO, the reversal of the sanctions this chaos in the Middle East benefiting uh, only Syria and Russia and so on. But we don't know why. We don't know. We really don't know exactly. Is this just a profound sympathy that Donald Trump has with Vladimir Putin? Uh, Is this a compromise situation? Uh, Is there financial information that would be reflected in his tax returns that demonstrates his uh, relationship to various oligarchs so we don't know and I, that, that in my mind and I'm speaking yeah. as one member of Congress that's something I would love to close the loop on if we could I, I gotta say congressman if Mueller couldn't answer those questions in two years I, I think it's unlikely you're going to answer them in the next couple of weeks but that said okay. give a tell us g- give us your rough idea of the timetable right now you say at some point 
we'll go to public hearings and then get this done by the end of the year. But give me how many more witnesses do you have? How many more weeks do you expect these closed door depositions to take? And then when do you pivot to the public phase? And again, who's going to conduct that public phase? Yes. And here again, I'm I'm not being coy or evasive. Every time that we get new witnesses, they invoke the names of other people who we want to interview. And we have to try to figure out how to fit it all in and how to properly sequence the witnesses as they come. So I don't I can't tell you uh, when we get to the end of that process. And I can't tell you exactly when we would begin the referral of everything to the Judiciary Committee to compile into articles of impeachment. But I will tell you that everybody is working as hard and as fast as possible to have all of this make sense. Do you think you make the referral by Thanksgiving and then a vote by Christmas? Well, I will tell you that is the sentiment among members. Everybody would like this to be done for Thanksgiving so everybody could have uh, done entirely, (laughs) actually voted out by the full house. That seems unlikely at this point. Yeah, Yeah, but I think that that is everybody's uh, dream objective. But uh, but uh, again, you know, we're we're not going to short circuit the process, but we're also not going to drag it out or let the GOP drag it out. We're being very serious about keeping this on a methodical timetable. All right. Well, we will uh, be checking back with you regularly on this methodical timetable because uh, this is clearly going to be the biggest uh, story for quite some time. Congressman, thanks again. Thank you. And and keep telling the people the truth. That's your job. You you guys, you're not the enemies of the people. You're the people's best friend. And Thomas Jefferson knew it. All right. I like it. Thanks Thanks so much. We now have with us Samantha Vinograd, former National Security Council official, who at one point was also responsible for matters in Iraq. She was also a special assistant to then National Security Advisor Tom Donilon under President Obama. Samantha, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. What a day to be on. Yeah. Um, So speaking of great days, our president uh, called the deal with Turkey for a supposed ceasefire a great day for civilization, was it? It was an awful day for civilization. First off, as we're finding out today, this agreement, which he referred to as a ceasefire and which I'll refer to as a surrender agreement, may already have been broken. We've learned throughout history that these, these agreements are tenuous at best. And President Trump did a victory lap before even seeing if this agreement would hold. Second, Michael, many people have died. I work with UNICEF. At least four children were killed by Turkish forces. 70,000 children have been displaced. Erdogan may have committed war crimes. So even based on that, it wasn't a great day. And then we throw in the fact that this agreement really means that Turkey did an illegal land grab. The Kurds are being pushed out of territory. And Russia, Iran, and Bashar al-Assad are getting stronger. So this is not a great day for civilization. It was an awful day for the world in terms of war crimes and in terms of the U.S. being able to exert influence abroad. So you, what you just said was that uh, you called it a surrender agreement, not a ceasefire. And that's a theme that we're hearing from a lot of people, including Republicans. Uh, Mitt Romney called said, it a blood stain on the in the annals of American history. But he also strongly suggested that the president was rolled and he asked, are we so weak and inept? 
So just um, talk about about what this means um, in terms of U.S. influence and prestige. I mean, normally in a situation like this, if you negotiate a ceasefire, you you then work to enforce that ceasefire. But we don't seem to have the leverage to do that. Well, we don't have the leverage to do anything. I mean, President Trump has campaigned and is still campaigning on fighting ISIS, right? That has been one of his core points. He just withdrew U.S. forces from the fight against ISIS. We don't. We are not going to have troops on the ground monitoring the situation. We have ISIS prisoners that were unleashed throughout uh, northeast Syria and potentially throughout the country. So the U.S. leverage in terms of just having any foothold in Syria right now to negotiate on what's happening, whether it's uh, to counter ISIS or to protect the Kurds, is really gone. We don't have a dog in the fight anymore, and that's why we're seeing actors like Vladimir Putin claim that they'll be the mediator in this kind of situation, which is unheard of to think that Vladimir Putin could be an unbiased mediator in anything. But he's the one the Kurds have turned to. He's who Bashar al-Assad has turned to because the U.S. is no longer able to exert uh, influence. And, you know, it's not just a question of the U.S. is no longer able to exert influence. I am convinced that Donald Trump doesn't really care about exerting influence. You think back to why he decided to leave Syria in the first place. You know, let's do like a throwback Thursday or flashback Friday all the way to Christmas of last year. When he was on the phone with Erdogan, Erdogan told him to leave Syria and he said, okay, catching all of his generals by surprise. Fast forward to this latest debacle, Erdogan again felt felt like he could go ahead with this invasion. You know, the White House has said that Trump did not endorse the operation did not endorse is a heck of a lot different than stopped. Past so if so, are, so if you were at the NSC at the time, and you knew that Erdogan was intent on on doing this, and you were advising uh, the National Security Advisor and the President, what should the President in a situation like that have done uh, at at the time to prevent that incursion or invasion? Well, for starters, he shouldn't have sent him a letter that looked like it, it was written by uh, a second grader and that many of us thought were fake. That certainly looked like a green light to me. It was Don't ridiculous. be a tough guy. <laughs> no, I mean, but seriously, back in the day, we used to clear all these letters through the intelligence community and policy professionals to ensure that they had their desired impact. In the first instance, that someone took them seriously. And second, um, that they laid out costs that were convincing. What the president should have done is get on the phone with Erdogan and tell him ahead of this operation, if you go forward with this, these are the costs that we are going to impose on you. And the president should have laid out costs that were completely unpalatable to Erdogan, like, for example, raising tariffs on steel and aluminum import exports, like, for example, sanctioning the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Natural Resources, the Ministry of Finance. All the things that the White House started to do after the invasion already started should have happened weeks ago. I mean, Trump said, I think it was yesterday or the day before, well, this Turkish invasion wasn't a surprise. That makes it so much worse. They had months, if not years, to convince Erdogan that the cost-benefit analysis of going into Syria was um, unacceptable to Erdogan. But look, instead, instead they didn't do that, and he went forward. I mean, Samantha, there are uh, people who have argued, including some with whom you served in government, who say that this was inevitable in the end, that the uh, Syrian Defense Forces, who we were assisting, were inextricably uh, inter 
intertwined with the PKK, uh, a terrorist group that is a threat to Turkey. Uh, er, the Turks have been complaining about this for years, uh, saying that it was intolerable to have a terrorist group that threatens our people, mm-hmm. that has conducted attacks on our country, on our border, and that we need them cleared out, and that our support for the S- Syrian Defense Forces you know, was going to lead to an inevitable clash on this issue. Isn't that critique? Correct? I don't I don't buy that. You don't. I Why think, not? I, I, I think that the that's Turks creating creating a set of a set of false choices. This trying to work with Turkey <laughs> to mitigate their security concerns does not equal allowing Turkey to invade Syria, reportedly conduct war crimes and basically do whatever they want. There could have been negotiations such that we tried to help Turkey address some real security concerns related to terrorist elements within within the Kurdish population in Syria. It was not inevitable that Turkey was just going to steamroll their way into Syria and do whatever they wanted. That's a that's a that's giving everything to Turkey and getting back to your original point that the US doesn't have any influence. We opened the door for Turkey to do this on their terms, and that's a key point. We didn't put any restrictions on what right. they did. And I, I don't think, Michael, that President Trump really cared. He said he didn't care the last few days. Right. So Turkey just did whatever they wanted. We supposedly imposed sanctions. And yesterday, President Trump said we're lifting them despite the fact that Turkey violated international law and conducted war crimes. Do you accept that the YPG, which is a, a major mm-hmm. part of the SDF, is in fact uh, you know, a front for the PKK uh, a, a terrorist group considered, considered a terrorist group by both the United States government and Turkey. I don't accept that. No, you don't. You that, don't think that I there's a re- close relationship between the YPG and the uh, and the PKK. I, I think that there is uh, likely a relationship. I do not accept that the YPG is a front for the PKK. I think that the YPG has done important work with us to counter ISIS. And I think that a responsible negotiation with the Turks and with the YPG and with the United States could have looked at ways to address Turkish concerns. But I don't think that we can uh, adopt Erdogan's talking points and just say that the YPG is one for one, the PKK. Okay, so now that we we are in this mess, what should be done about it? What can Congress do? What kind of pressure can we put on the administration to mitigate the damage that's already been done? Well, Congress should move ahead with their sanctions. And at the executive level, under the executive order that President Trump announced uh, earlier this week, we need to hold Turkey accountable for what they've already done. So a certain amount of executive branch sanctions should go forward, again, to punish Turkey. And we have to figure out a way to ensure that they uphold the ceasefire. The only way to do that is, again, to convince them that there are costs if they don't. Unfortunately, yesterday, again, as we where we started, President Trump did a victory lap, praising Erdogan, saying he should come to the White House. That's not going to incentivize Erdogan to do anything differently than what he's been doing already, right? The, the worst thing that Erdogan has suffered through so far is a visit from uh, Mike Pompeo and Vice President Pence, right? That's, <laughs> that's the worst thing that he's suffered. So that pretty much guarantees that he's just going to keep doing what he's doing, which is being Erdogan. So what we need to do is punish him for what he's done and credibly lay out costs if he doesn't uphold this this uh, this agreement. But look, at the end of the day, there's one 
U.S. interest in that region right now, and that is making sure that ISIS, that there's no resurgence of ISIS and that ISIS militants don't conduct terrorist attacks uh, against the United States. Other than that, I think it's, this, it's doubtful that American voters or the American public is going to care much about what's going on in northeastern Syria. So the only real question is... Is this going to lead to ISIS militants uh, escaping from jails, ISIS militants conducting terrorist attacks? And if you have Turkish forces and you have Syrian government forces in the region, both of whom uh, are committed to fighting ISIS as well, is this such a blow to the core American interest, which is containing ISIS? Michael, I'm going to be contrarian for, contrarian for one second and okay. just say that an, another American interest in the region is related to our ability to convincingly be an ally. And I think that, you know, the Kurds is something that's hard for American voters to understand. But the fact that we turned our back on a partner on the ground, the fact that we announced a withdrawal of forces from Syria without consulting with the global co uh, coalition to defeat ISIS that is going to have an adverse impact on our ability to fight anywhere in the world at any time. So I, I hope that the American people can understand that a little bit. Well, with respect to your question about ISIS, I think that's somewhat unknowable. The Turkish forces are likely going to be preoccupied with dealing with the Kurds, unfortunately. And the bottom line is that we are not going to be part of that fight. We had a lot more control over countering ISIS and the global coalition against ISIS when we had a dog in the fight and we had troops on the ground. So right now, my concern is that we are ceding responsibility for countering ISIS to Turkey, to Russia and to others. And so from my perspective, that really worries me because ISIS is a core counterterrorism objective for the United States. And the issue is not just whether they launch attacks against the United States. The issue, of course, is whether they launch attacks against Europe as well, which is in much closer proximity uh, to Syria. So shouldn't the Europeans be at the forefront of that fight then? They should, and they've been they've been strong partners in this. But they have no they have no troops there. They, they they're not they don't have skin in the game the way we do. The, you know the question from Trump's perspective is why are we carrying the whole load? Uh, why are we in the middle of this maelstrom with all these conflicting tribal interests surrounding us? Um, many of whom you know are not at all allies of the United States and don't want to be. I think that's been Trump's argument on everything, right? NATO, any NATO mission that you name, countering ISIS, any core U.S. national uh, security concern. It's a fair argument to try to get other countries to do more, but I just don't really think really just putting American national security at risk and just taking a chance that ISIS is able to reconstitute is worth it at this point. And I don't think that we will have the same ability to counter ISIS without troops on the ground or our military planners and counterterrorism experts would have supported this decision. And by the way, just uh, quickly going back to Mike's point about ISIS being our single and core interest in the region, I think it's also a core interest of the United States, is it not, to keep Russia from being a more important, more influential player in the region, um, and frankly, uh, letting um, the Syrians uh, take back all of that territory. But I, I actually want to move on to the other part of the world that is the subject of the uh, impeachment inquiry into uh, President Trump, and that's Ukraine. And Sam, uh, this past week, we witnessed this kind of incredible scene of these career diplomats uh, traipsing up to Capitol Hill to tell 
their stories to express their horror over what was transpiring in terms of uh, how foreign policy was being uh, privatized and handed over to Rudy Giuliani. And I guess I want to ask you, as someone who has uh, been in government for a long time and worked with the State Department and other uh, you know, civil servants and, and, and professionals, why did this strike such a chord with the sort of professional class of diplomats and civil servants, the people who traditionally have been kind of the stewards of American foreign policy? Just talk about that a little bit. Well, I think the issue is that career diplomats have not been able to actually do their jobs under this administration. You have people like our acting ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, you have our deputy assistant secretary of state for European affairs who just testified on Capitol Hill. And you have people that have spent their lives and are experts on issues like Ukraine and anti-corruption who have been pushed out of any national security process while the president pursues political objectives. And, you know, I cringe every time I hear the phrase, well, Trump was doing a shadow foreign policy in Ukraine. Nothing about what Rudy Giuliani, Volcker and Sondland were doing had anything to do with foreign policy. They were implementing the president's political agenda and that had nothing to do with foreign policy. And I think the reason we saw someone like um, Ambassador McKinley resign from the State Department is, again, this notion that they can't actually do their jobs because basically these campaign surrogates for the president are running around using their official sounding titles to conduct the president's personal business. And, I, I, you know, I was a career official. I served under Bush and then served under Obama. Politics are not supposed to impact foreign policy. And I heard Mick Mulvaney yesterday give this um, horrible presser where he said, get over it. This kind of stuff happens all the time. That is such a lie. It is so demonstrably false. A president's political agenda has never, to my knowledge, made its way into foreign policy before. This is truly ahistoric. And, and by the way, I think it's worth pointing out that the man who uh, the president contracted out our foreign policy, or if not our foreign policy, our dealings in Ukraine, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, was also doing business in Ukraine. <laughs> right. Well, speaking Mild of conflict of interest, speaking right? Speaking of doing business in Ukraine, one of those career officials, George Kent, who was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the region, uh, testified yesterday that he raised concerns about Hunter Biden's service on the uh, Burisma uh, uh, Energy Board with Vice President Biden's staff at the time, expressing concerns that uh, Ukrainian officials would view Hunter Biden as a conduit for curring influence with his father. Was George Kent right? I think we're mixing apples and oranges a little bit. I think no, that I'm just Kent asking would... about that apple or that orange. We don't have to compare it to Rudy <laughs> well, Giuliani no, I think, no, or what but, the uh, but Mike, Trump I think it's a, I'm going to answer your question, and then I want to. I do want to uh, compare it because it's been. Uh, it's there's been a lot of false equivalencies. George Kent was right to raise um, the fact that there could be an, an appearance about a conflict of interest. That was his job to raise any anything that could uh, adversely impact um, the ability of the vice president to advance the foreign policy of the United States. But again, Vice President Biden was joined with members of the Obama administration, Europeans and others in pushing for this anti-corruption work in Ukraine. And I just want to be careful not to compare Hunter Biden and the vice president with President Trump and his children or his personal lawyer. Um, a good point to make on uh, a day we've learned that uh, the president is going to host the G7 summit at his uh, resort <laughs> golf club in uh, in Florida. Um, Samantha Vinegrad, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, hope we will have thank you back you. soon. Yes, come back Anytime. soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bye. Sam. 
Thanks to Congressman Jamie Raskin and former national security official Sam Vinograd for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.